Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 24. Joshua, chapter 24. We hear now the word of our God. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your, into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. The two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. 
And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. This is the word of the Lord. If you... If you ever wondered where, when, when, when Jesus says that if, if these are silent, even the, the, the rocks, even the stones will cry out. Well, Joshua had, take, had taken a rock. Yeah, a big rock, but taken a rock and said, hey, this rock heard what you said. You, know, you, think, you think about geology and how long rocks last. I mean, so like, this rock isn't going anywhere. This rock heard what you said. And you know, if in, in ages to come, nobody else is around to say it, this rock will bear witness against you that you... We still have sayings like this. You know, if these walls could talk. You know, you, you're, you're in a house, an old house. You're like, wow, I wonder what these you know, walls have heard. You know, especially you, you go to Europe where the, some of these walls have been around for hundreds of years. And you're like, wow. Yeah. But... Even the stones will cry out. They, the rocks have heard. The rocks have seen so much. And they will bear witness. I mean, it's, it's a curious phrase in one sense, but this is, this is a common feature throughout the scriptures of even the inanimate creation bears witness. If we think about, if we think about what we saw a couple weeks ago with, with the story of Ed, the, the altar of witness, which was... A pile of rocks that was built to bear witness to God's faithfulness and to the promises and covenants within the people of God. We've come in these, you'll notice this theme of witness has been the theme here at the end of the book of, of Joshua, which is not surprising because this is a covenant renewal, covenant uh, succession type of situation. Joshua's going to die. In the same way that the book begins after the death of Moses, when Joshua was commissioned by God to lead the people into the land, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Now it ends with the death of Joshua, after God has fulfilled all that he had promised. We've heard in this book, actually Joshua here recounts part of what has happened in the very pages of this book. But we heard how God brought his people into the land of promise in chapters 1 through 5 in the crossing of the Jordan. And then in chapters 6 through 12, we heard of the conquest of the land, how God went before Israel through Joshua, the one who would cause Israel to inherit the land and delivered their enemies into their hands. In chapters 13 to 21, we heard of the division of the land, how God gave to each tribe an inheritance, even though some of the tribes weren't particularly zealous or faithful in taking possession of their inheritance. 
And then we have these last couple stories at the end with how Israel nearly went to war against the eastern tribes because they built an altar. But it turned out to be innocent, an, an altar of witness to remind Israel that the Lord, He is God. And then we have these gatherings at the end. We heard last time of how Joshua summoned the elders and judges of Israel. And we heard last time how the Lord had given rest to Israel from their surrounding enemies. And how Joshua spoke to the, the, a generation of elders that had seen with their own eyes the great works of the Lord. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. In our passage for tonight... Joshua makes reference to the hornet that went before them, how it wasn't Israel's sword or bow that accomplishes their conquest of the land. And and you might have been puzzled at that when you're like, but wait a second, they did go out with sword and bow, they did go out to battle. What is this hornet that God has sent before them? Uh, There's lots of, there's lots of debate and conversation about it, but whatever, it's, it's part of uh, it's, it's, it's an oblique reference to what modern historians call the, the, the Bronze Age collapse. When everything in the ancient world collapses, all the major powers in a 50-year period just go poof. And so right at the moment when Israel's coming into the land, the, the Egyptians are not able to contest this. I mean, you, Egypt was in charge of this part of the world. You might have thought Egypt would show up and say, hey, you're the ones who tried to run away 40 years ago. Egypt's got too many problems inside. They're not paying any attention to what's going on here. Oh, usually when that happens, the Assyrians show up or the Babylonians show up. Or, and the Hittites were just, you know, a few a couple decades ago, the Hittites were the ones basically challenging Ramesses for control of this per, piece of real estate. Where are the Hittites? Why aren't they? They're gone. Everybody's gone. God refers to this as the hornet. Whatever it was that God did, and it's this hornet that God sends that just blows up the ancient world so that just at the right moment, the people of God take possession of the land and there's nobody around to contest it. The people that live there obviously aren't very happy about it, but the major powers aren't there. And it takes them another century or so to recover, which gives time for our story to unfold as we'll see as we keep going on in the in the book of Judges. But Joshua is now speaking to the people of Israel and and reminding the reminding them of their history and of God's faithfulness. And it, we're told in chapter 24 verse 1 that Joshua gathers all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and particularly summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, the officers of Israel. Uh, This is is a covenant renewal, and so it's the people who are in charge of the people. These are the ones, the leaders, those who who are responsible for the people of God. And they presented themselves before God. Moses had told them to present themselves before God three times a year at the feasts of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And so they come. And the focus is on the elders, heads, judges, officers, but also it also speaks of all the tribes. So it's not it's not clear that it's just the leaders, but certainly the leaders, especially, need to be there for this. 
And this is, this is a common feature in covenant making and covenant renewal that legal representatives enter into binding agreements for those who are under their care and for those who come after them. This still happens today. I mean, are you required to abide by the Constitution of the United States? I mean, as long as you live in this country, as long as you're a citizen of the United States, yeah. Um, how is that fair? I didn't have any say in drafting the Constitution. Probably a good idea. I mean, it's probably a better document that none of us were involved in. Um, but, but that's where, if you're born in the United States, or if you're born to parents who are U.S. citizens, then you are legally required to abide by the Constitution of the United States unless you formally opt out by renouncing your citizenship. Well, God's covenant works the same way. Joshua says to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Sort of, this is, he is, he is the God of Israel, and he is establishing his covenant, and, and, and really what, what you see in, in this covenant renewal ceremony is Joshua saying, okay, sort of, are you in or are you out? And if you're gonna opt out, now's the time to say it. <laughs> Otherwise, you and your descendants, you and, and, and your descendants, it's not just biological descendants, because the sojourner who winds up becoming part of Israel, becomes part of it too. So it's, anytime you start thinking about Old Testament Israel as a biological entity, it never was a biological entity. There's always other people who are being joined into the, to the family of God. But Joshua, notice that he, he, puts, he puts all of this in the voice of the Lord himself. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Uh, you'll notice that it's in verse 14 that Joshua switches back into his own voice, but without hint of transition. So he, he doesn't, there's no, there's no sort of like, and now I say to you, <laughs> it's a seamless move which has an interesting effect because it winds up identifying the voice of Joshua with the voice of God, which foreshadows our Lord Jesus, the greater Lord Joshua, who will say, go so far as to say, the Father and I are one. And Joshua recounts the story of salvation thus far. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. This is in, the, in Mesopotamia, in the land of the, the Babylon, Ur of the Chaldees, which is one of the ancient cities of, of Mesopotamia, beyond the Euphrates. And we're told that you know, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. The story begins with Abraham's fathers serving other gods beyond the Euphrates. In verse 15, the story will end with the question, will you serve the Lord or will you serve the gods that your fathers served beyond the river? Basically sandwiching the, sort of the, whole, the whole story around this question of your fathers served other gods. Do you want to go back to the gods of Abraham's fathers or are you going to serve the God of Abraham? Remember where you came from. Remember how far you have come. Remember your story. I mean, if you think about it, all of you have ancestors that served other gods. Some of you may have had ancestors that served other gods more recently than others. But in the end, all of you have ancestors that served other gods. Will you go back to those ancestors? sort of the gods of your ancestors. You could easily argue that what's happening in modern Western culture is that people are going back to the gods of their fathers. They're going back to, uh, it's 
the, the, whether it's when we serve power and pleasure and stuff, I mean, it's, that's really ultimately what we're doing. We're going back to the gods of our fathers. And remember, he says, how I took your father Abraham, verse 3, from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. <laughs> At first, that juxtaposition is like, I, I gave him one. Now, we know from Genesis that he actually had seven sons, but there's one son who would inherit the promise. But also, think around the corners of the story. You know, we, know, we know from Genesis 14 that Abraham had 318 servants who were trained warriors. What happened to them? And their families? What happened to the thousands of people who came in contact with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Many of whom were part of their household, part of their people? I mean, again, if you just think of Israel as the biological descent from Abraham, you're missing out on what the story itself is telling us about who these people are. And to Isaac... I gave Jacob and Esau. It's interesting. I mean, sort of, why does Esau get mentioned here? Why does God even say, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt? It's designed to get you thinking about Jacob and Esau. What, what was the difference between Jacob and Esau? We often think of Jacob as, ah, Jacob was the one who tricked Esau out of his inheritance. No, no, no. He, he, he tricked him out of his blessing, not out of his inheritance. What did Jacob actually get? Of all of Isaac's stuff, what did Jacob actually get? He gets the blessing. What does Esau get of all Isaac's stuff? He gets all the stuff. Because Remember when Jacob comes back uh, from, from, from Haran and... Uh, and God has blessed Jacob, and he's got, he, he comes back from Haran with all, sorts of, with all sorts of stuff. And so when he comes to meet Esau, he offers Esau presents, and Esau's sort of like, what? <laughs> uh, but because Jacob says, I don't need any more stuff. I got, I got all my stuff. And so what does Esau do? Esau takes everything and goes down to, to, to Edom. And takes takes a year. What does Jacob get? He gets the promise. Which actually, in one sense, I mean, if you think about the conflict between Jacob and Esau, we oftentimes think of, oh, Jacob was just he he was he was he he was trying to get all the stuff because basically you got two sons. The way the way inheritance works in those days is the, the oldest son gets a double portion and the younger son gets a single portion. So you basically you divide your stuff into three parts. And the oldest son gets two parts, and the younger son gets one part. So, basically, this is a big deal. When you have two sons, one of the guys, boys is going to get twice as much as the other one. What does Jacob actually want in all this? He wants the blessing. And he's willing to... For, I mean, Esau will get a triple portion. Esau gets all of Isaac's stuff. What, does Jacob, what is Jacob left with? The land, which Jacob will never own himself. 
He knows from the beginning that it's going to be 400 years of slavery to another country before his descendants ever inherit the land. Why is Joshua highlighting Jacob and Esau here? Because Jacob has a vision for God's promises and God's blessings. That this is, it's not about, I'm going to get stuff, I'm going to get the power. I'm, it's going to, Jacob, Jacob has what he wanted. Abraham's blessing. Esau also has what he wanted. Abraham's stuff. What is it that matters more? And this is where now, now you see, hundreds of years later, that God's blessing has come upon the children of Jacob, Israel. Indeed, at the end of his life, Jacob goes down to Egypt where Jacob blessed Pharaoh and the blessing of Abraham even came to the Egyptians in those days. But of course then there arose the Pharaoh who did not remember Joseph or Jacob. And afterward I sent Moses and Aaron and plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it and afterward I brought you out. Now we come to the living, the edges of living memory in Joshua's day. The Exodus was now 70, 80 years ago. But many of the graybeards would have been children in Egypt they would have remembered the death of the firstborn. And I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And, and you came to the sea. You were there. Your eyes saw. You lived in the wilderness a long time. That's a nice way of putting it. Forty years in the wilderness because of the rebellion of their fathers. We often read the Bible in a way that leaves out the trauma and misery of the ordinary lives that were lived in those days. But if you just think about it a little bit, just think about, what would it have been like? Okay, so, okay, growing up as slaves in Egypt was not exactly a comfortable existence. <laughs> that itself would have had its own traumas and miseries. And then, you're off in the wilderness. You spend your whole childhood, your teen years, growing up in the desert. You get married in a desert nomad camp. And, it's, and you're like, oh, it's better than the slavery in Egypt, right? And some of your fathers are like, mm. <laughs> It's, this is not better than life in Egypt. And the conflict and the, and the bickering and that's all going on around you. And this, this, is your, this is your growing up years. It's a hard life in a dry and weary land. But then, verse 8, I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. This was now less than 30 years ago. This is now living memory for all of the elders, all of the leaders. They all remember this well. This was when they themselves went to war and conquered the land of, of, on the east side of the Jordan under Moses. And I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land. I destroyed them before you. The two and a half tribes get that inheritance on the east side of the Jordan. And then he re reminds them about Balaam. Interesting that Balaam gets two whole verses here. There are inscriptions in the Transjordan region that tell about Balaam. Because he was a great wizard, a great prophet, who, who knew the secret mysteries of the gods and, and knew the words to use in order to get the gods to do what he wants. Of course, the book of Numbers tells us that Balaam was humbled by his donkey. And instead of cursing Israel, he blessed Israel. God continues to upend and overturn all of the gods of the nations in order to show forth his mighty power. 
And verses 11 to 13 recite the events of the book of Joshua. You went over the Jordan. You came to Jericho. You, and I gave the land into your hand. Israel was sent as the angel of death to bring judgment against these nations. The conquest was a picture of the final judgment. It's sort of an intrusion of sort of the last days into the middle of history. If you think about it, God, God had done this a couple times before in the flood. God warned humanity, but no one paid attention. God sent fire from, from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, of course, the problem is, if, if God destroys everyone, then there's no one left to repent. So it's kind of hard when you just, just, if you just, you know, if you just save the one righteous guy and destroy all the wicked, then there's nobody left to repent. So that's why what God is doing is he, he shows in the flood, he shows at Sodom and Gomorrah, here is what sin deserves. Boom! And now he shows in a particular case, in the conquest, okay, here's what sin deserves, yes, but I want y'all to pay attention to this and repent and believe so that this doesn't also happen to you. So after demonstrating a couple times up front that the wages of sin is death, God now makes an example of one place in Canaan in order to show all nations what his kingdom looks like. Now, I mean, sneak peek at coming attractions. Uh, Israel doesn't do so well at establishing the kingdom of God. Um, but Joshua's language reminds us of what Moses had said in Deuteronomy. You know, Moses had said this would happen. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, cities you had not built. I mean, this is what God had promised. God had said he would do this. God has done it. From Abraham to Joshua, the story of salvation is beginning to show God's purposes for history. And this recitation of, of God's covenant faithfulness is designed to remind the people of God what God has done for them. And because of what God has done, now Israel is called to live faithfully before God. I mean, if you think about it, this is exactly the same dynamic that Paul uses in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This is, this is Joshua language. I, I went before you. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Because of the, what God has done, because he has saved you, because it is all of his grace. Therefore, walk before him. And that's where Joshua turns now in verses 14 to 18 as he, he appeals to, to, to Israel to put away their foreign gods, put away, put away the, the gods uh, that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, which suggests that this is a problem. I mean, if, if everybody in Israel was all, already faithfully worshiping the Lord and him only, you wouldn't have this line here. <laughs> when he says, put away the, the, the gods from beyond the river, put away the gods of Egypt, it's because Israel still hasn't gotten rid of the sin of Peor, which we heard about last time, or time before. Now, there's also a, a certain measure of mockery here, if you think about the way this has been set up. Really now, you're worshiping gods from beyond the river, beyond the Euphrates. These were the gods that, you know, that, were your, that Abraham's parents would have worshipped. You're worshipping them? Now, uh, what did they ever do for Abraham's family? 
Who is the one who gave Abraham an inheritance? That would be Yahweh. Why are you going back to them? And, and, and don't get me started on the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. How well did the gods of the Amorites protect the Amorites from you? Why would you worship their gods? Don't waste my time. If you're going to worship them, then get on with it. But count me out. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If all Israel rebels, at least there will be one household that is faithful. We read 1 Kings 18 a couple weeks ago in the morning service. Elijah at Mount Carmel versus the prophets of Baal. Elijah had said, How long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. Elijah remembers Joshua at Shechem. And in Elijah's day, the people also responded well for a day. But in Elijah's day, there was no renewal of the covenant. Oh, sure, they shouted, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And they killed the prophets of Baal. But that very night, Jezebel puts a price on Elijah's head. And everything goes back to the way it was. And so Elijah goes all the way back to Mount Horeb, back to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And he tells God that the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, what Joshua had said in Joshua 24, has happened. I alone am left of all the prophets of God. People sometimes say that God rebukes Elijah. No. Elijah's complaint is right. Maybe, maybe Elijah had thought that he was supposed to be a prophet like Moses, re- renewing the covenant, restoring the people of God. But at Mount Horeb, Elijah discovers, no, his mission is to anoint the three destroyers who will bring an end to the house of Ahab and bring judgment on Israel. Because Israel has become Canaan. And the land of Canaan must be conquered. And so Elisha, 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 whose name means God saves, like Joshua means Yahweh saves. Elisha, will enter the promised land following the same route as Joshua, across the Jordan on dry land, coming to Gilgal, to Jericho, and Bethel. (laughs) That's the path of Joshua into the promised land. That's the path of Elisha into the promised land. Elisha will come to bring a new conquest, overthrowing Israel, (laughs) because Israel has become the Canaanites. Because they worship Canaanite gods. You worship Canaanite gods? You're a Canaanite. If you're going to be the Lord's people, you have to worship the Lord. You can't worship other gods. But that's where the story is going. For now, the people respond, well, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And they they, they recite the story of salvation. So, of course, we will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Notice that they, they... they say they'll serve God, they'll, they love God because of what he has done for us. And some people think that, oh, we should just love God purely for his own sake. They, they suggest it shouldn't matter whether God has done anything for us, we should love him because of who he is. Now, the problem is that you can't 
even start that when. You can't separate who God is from what he's done, and especially you and I can't. He made us. So apart from what he's done, you wouldn't even exist. So you can't even start the question, because he made you. In order to love God purely for his own sake, you would have to be God. But of course, that is, we saw this morning, the way that love exists in the God himself. God has always loved himself. God, the Father has loved the Son. The Son has loved the Spirit. The Spirit has loved the Father. The three persons of the Trinity have always loved each other. For us, we love him because he first loved us. But, but Joshua is not content with this profession of loyalty. He says, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. And you're like, okay, what do you, what do you mean, Joshua? Because you know, Moses had heard, when, when Moses heard the name of, of God, you know, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and great gracious, you know, what do you mean he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins? Well, it, it's true. I mean, he will not forgive you. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, if you turn away from following the Lord, then he won't forgive you. But pastor, what about he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins? You left out the key phrase. I know, I did, because I was setting you up for this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Yes, he is merciful, he is slow to anger, he does forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. But if you don't repent... If you don't turn away from your sin, then no, he won't forgive your sins. He forgives everyone who repents. If Israel at Mount Carmel had repented, if they had turned from the Baals to actually follow the Lord, he would have forgiven them. If you repent, then God will forgive you. You might be thinking, I'm not sure I, I like what God says. Well, that's not the issue. The question is, who is God? If the Lord, if he is God, then you need to worship him and trust him. He made all things and he knows what he's doing. So you just need to start by saying, okay, I'm going to follow God and we'll see where this leads. But I can trust him because he's God and I'm not. And so when the people reply, no, but we will serve the Lord Then Joshua says, okay, but your witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they, oh yes, we are witnesses. If if we turn away, we will be the first to say we have have failed. And so he says, okay, then put away the foreign gods. Stop worshiping other gods. This is a constant problem for the people of God. It's not, and we do it too. We turn aside to the to the gods of power and, and pleasure and, and wealth and stuff and status. And we seek after other, other and, and we have to keep turning away from that. We have to keep repenting. And Joshua does this with, because there's, there's, there's two witnesses that he calls. It's first the, the people themselves are witnesses. And then he takes this large stone and sets it up under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And it says, Behold, this stone shall be a witness. 
So there's the two witnesses. The first witness is you yourselves are witnesses. In, in ancient covenants, there are, there are witnesses named. And because if there's a breach of contract, who, who will witness what the original contract was? So the people of Israel are witness. Their testimony is written down in this book. And now we're reading it. <laughs> this bears witness. The second witness is this big rock. For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Just as the eastern tribes had set up Ed, the altar of witness, by the Jordan, now Joshua sets up another Ed, the stone of witness at Shechem, as a witness that Israel is a witness against themselves if they go astray. Now, finally, we hear of these two deaths sandwiched around a burial. As the first death is that of Joshua at the age of 110. We're told that Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived him, those who had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. The second death is the death of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the high priest. He was buried at Gibeah of Ephraim, the town of Phinehas, not Gibeah and Benjamin. Though, if you know the last story in the book of Judges, this reference to Gibeah is not accidental. And it should sound ominous to you. (laughs) But in between the two deaths is the burial of Joseph's bones. Now, I'm beginning to see all sorts of connections between Joshua and Kings. The book of Kings is playing with with the, the Joshua account over and over again. Kings has two boys raised from the dead, sandwiched around the ascension of Elijah, the symbolism plainly showing Israel's hope to be the resurrection of the dead. Now the bones of Joseph play a similar role here in the, at the end of Joshua. Joseph had made his people promise that they would bring his bones back to the land and bury him in the promised land. Because Joseph knew, my hope, my future isn't in Egypt. My hope, my future is in the promised land. How much did Joseph understand about the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting? Enough to know, I want to be buried in the land, because being buried in the land, this is where the future of the people of God is. This is where my future is. That God is a God who raises the dead, and, and that's, that's, where, that's where the story is going. All these references to Israel's future collapse are supposed to point you forward even farther to say, but remember, that's why God sent Jesus. Because Jesus is the Son of God. He is the one who takes this whole story up into himself. And he takes our story. And he brings us to new, new life in his resurrection. That as he is raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God, so he has raised us up in him and seated us in the heavenly places in himself that we might have life. So let's pray. Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy because... We, we forget these things. We, we hear of your great faithfulness in past generations. We hear of, of your mighty deeds. And we, we marvel, but then we, we don't see it. And we turn away and we, we get focused on our own power and our own pleasure, our own stuff and status. And we, Lord, have mercy. Forgive us for not keeping our eyes fixed on you. Forgive us for for turning to other gods because we confess that that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have loved other things more than you and we have 
worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So Lord, have mercy on us, we pray. And help us by your Holy Spirit to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, your Son, who sits at your right hand. Help us, because, because by ourselves, in ourselves, we have no strength. But you are strong. You are, you are our rock, our fortress, the one to whom we can flee in every situation. So have mercy and help us to heed your voice and to respond to your covenant by worshiping you, by loving you with our whole heart and thus loving our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, have mercy. Strengthen us this night and, and, and help us to, to walk before you throughout the coming week that we, might, that we might, in everything we do, in our work, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in, in our friendships, in our conversations, Lord, help us to, to he, heed your voice and to speak words of, that encourage and build up others. Help us to, to love in our words, to love in our deeds, to love in our thoughts, that we, might, that we might be conformed to the likeness of your Son who gave himself for us. And as we come now to this, your table, we pray that you would strengthen us and, and nourish us with the body and blood of your dear Son. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.